Hi everyone, back, <coughs> back like Epaphroditus from the bed of sickness, the door of COVID. So it's good to be back. I'm not contagious in case any of you are scared to shake my hand. It's all clear now. And so we return to, um, after Advent, back to our run through the Paul's letter to the Philippians. And by way of reminder, what was going on? <coughs> You remember that Philippians, uh, yeah, Philippi um, was a Roman colony. It was very proud of its status in the Roman Empire. Not everyone in um, Philippi is a Roman citizen. A good deal of the people in the church probably aren't Roman citizens. But Philippi itself is very proud of the fact that really it's kind of like number two on the scale of important Roman cities. Maybe Ephesus. They're pretty, they're pretty stoked about their place um, within the Roman Empire. And you'll remember in chapter 1 that uh, one of the things that Paul says to them is to live a life, this is just in English there, or conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And peeling back there um, to the Greek, in fact, is an interesting word that actually connects with the idea, when we get to um, chapter 3, of the idea of a commonwealth. Paul says, your commonwealth is in heaven. Your citizenship, your commonwealth is in heaven. And from there we wait uh, for a saviour to uh, order all things according to his uh, power, the same power by which he was raised from the dead. And so the Philippians are called actually to live this new life of what it means to live in the commonwealth of the kingdom of God, the commonwealth of heaven, the, the commonwealth of God's rule upon the world. And, of course, we have to ask the question, what does that look like? And there are a lot of different bits and pieces we could go through through the whole New Testament that sort of instruct us as to how to live. But surely the fundamental question for us, or the fundamental answer, I suppose, really, is actually what is the example that Christ sets before us? And probably here, more clear than anywhere else uh, in all of Paul's letters, you have that wonderful um, hymn which comes just before what we've read out this morning that we need to have the same mind that was in Christ the same reasoning the same deliberation the same um, wisdom all those sorts of things all wrapped together we need to have that wisdom that is in Christ that is displayed in this act of Jesus where though in the form of God he didn't consider equality to God something to be grasped at or seized kept for himself he said he empties himself takes on the form of a slave, of a servant, born in human likeness, found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the same mind, mindset that we are supposed to have in terms of the Christian life with the promise, as happened to Jesus, that God highly exalted him. God vindicated the life of Jesus. He vindicated his obedience unto death and gave him the name above every name. That's a decisive moment in history which cannot turn around. This is set for the ages. Is there somebody who can challenge Jesus? No, here's a name above every name. Is there a power which can somehow pull Jesus back down from heaven? No, there is not. This is the decisive moment of history, the resurrection of Jesus. The name under every uh, name, above every name, with the, with the declaration in the future, everyone shall acknowledge that, whether in gladness or maybe despair or whatever, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
that can kind of seem maybe even too big and maybe even too abstract to talk about what well, we need to follow Jesus in his example on the cross. First uh, Peter 2 says actually Jesus did set forth an example for us in his suffering up to the cross. But what we're going to see just here in chapter 2 is some very concrete, maybe small, it seems in comparison, examples of what it means to live the Christian life from people who follow Christ and call and actually call us to follow their example as they follow the example of Christ itself. So without further ado, we come to the question of what does it mean to live a Christian life? It means to work out the salvation that has been given to us in this way that we've just explained. Work out the salvation that has been given to you. Outwork what it means to actually live in conformity and participating in the life of Christ. Work it out with fear and trembling. Not really something that we often say in church, is it? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's all about the love. It's all about joy. It's all about experiencing the peace. But work out your salvation, Paul says here, in fear and trembling. Recalling, I think, Exodus chapter 20, where God has come down from the Mount at Sinai and given the law, the Ten Commandments, and instructed Israel about the way that it needs to live. And there is fear and trembling, and rightly so, because you're in the presence of of the holy God as in one sense it's no different for us when we talk about Jesus Christ is the Lord we ought to like kind of have a breath taken away for a moment and with awe and with a healthy fear of whom we are dealing and um, maybe a bit of trembling also but remember as we do do this, as we do work out our salvation, as we do live this Christian life in fear and trembling, remembering that this is not just something we're doing on our own, but it is God himself. God himself is working in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Okay? It's not like God has just given us a bunch of instructions, go and do this, off you go, report back later. God himself is involved in our life and trying to bring us into this fullness of life and fullness of his purposes for the world. We've talked a little bit before about the, the, um, the next uh, section, so I want to move on quickly to um, thinking about our, our examples here. We have the example of Christ, but then we also have the example living out this ethos, this form of life that Christ has given to us, two people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Timothy's well-known, pops up all over the New Testament, right there at the end too, in uh, the pastoral letters where Paul, the elderly apostle, suffering and uh, imprisoned again. Um, Timothy is the guy that he can count on. There's a number of places where he says, this person and that person has abandoned me, having loved the present world. Instead, we have here two examples of uh, people who really know what it's all about, and um, have to, in essence, count the cost of what it means to follow Christ. So he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. And how good would it be to have this said about you? Not in a prideful way, but as a kind of vote of um, confidence. 
I have no one else like him. How good is that? How, how good would it be to have the Apostle Paul say something like that to you? I have no one else like him. And yet on the other hand, you think, gee, why haven't you got many other people like him? And this is the thing that sets him apart from, from others. I've no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. So I have no one else that really will show genuine concern for your welfare. It's probably the hardest way to read that, isn't it? But however you look at it, this character that Timothy has, this character shaped by the following example of Christ, exhibits itself in this concern for others, for their welfare, for their good. And then recalling in um, verse 21, you think back to the beginning of chapter 2 there where Paul says, look, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't just be looking to your own interests, but each of you look to the interests of others. That's what he's exhorting them to do. But you know what? Here's someone right here that they've met and can know who says it was exactly that. Everyone looked out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing there, isn't there, is that you have, in a sense, the love commandments of the Gospels repeated. You might think about, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yay! And the second, which is like unto the first, love your neighbour as yourself. And we don't just collapse the two together but they are interwoven aren't they they are joined together like uh, John says in his letters don't tell me you love God if you don't love your brother or sister the love of God and the love of others belong together you can't play them off against each other everyone looks out for their own interests not those of Jesus Christ and I think that kind of adds an extra oomph if you should just care for people like Timothy but also that is the very interest of Jesus Christ, our welfare, or the welfare of others. To follow Christ means to be concerned with your brothers and sisters and, and their welfare as well. By extension, that means, of course, also be concerned with those around you, your neighbours and those you come into contact with as well. This is fundamental and this is the interests of Jesus Christ. If you are interested in the things of Jesus Christ, you are interested in the welfare of others, not just your own interests, or even don't look out for your own interests, just to put it in the most stark form. Something about Timothy and who he is and who he's become is that Paul says that you know Timothy has proved himself. He has shown, he's demonstrated to people um, that he actually is someone worthy to watch, worthy to um, follow, worthy to emulate. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And I think that's an interesting um, thing for us to pick up on. You know, there's a lot of talk about mentoring and things like that and leadership and so forth. We might think about it in terms of a kind of apprenticeship of sorts. As a father and a son, working together, serving together in this common work, common work of the gospel. And so he says, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So look, that's, that's Timothy. There's no one, basically there's no one else like him that Paul 
has. And that's what sets him apart. And then verse 25 says, I think it was necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. Now, how does he describe him? What does it actually look like to be working in the gospel? Epaphroditus, he says, he calls him my brother. Okay? He's not my underling. He's not my sidekick, my stooge or whatever else. Paul, as an apostle even, Paul considers him first and foremost a brother. And then secondly, a co-worker alongside, working alongside Paul as well. And a fellow soldier, he says too. Brother, a co-worker, working alongside in the work of the gospel, but also a fellow soldier. Of course, meaning what? That there is struggle involved in Christian life, and in particular in the advancement of the gospel. We're going to talk about the announcement of Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the one who has name above every name, in the context of ancient Rome, and as we saw before, Caesar, who declares himself as actually being um, divine, a son of God, the saviour, the true saviour, inaugurating his own new age in Rome, those two ideas are going to clash together. It is a struggle. It is a fight. Not a fight like we see today in kind of cultural warrior tactics, trying to control media and politics and policy and, and things like that. It is a spiritual battle, but it is also a battle that works itself out in terms of the ideas and ideologies and things like that uh, in the world. All of the people around Paul, all of his co-workers, had to struggle with the fact that they were announcing another king. They're announcing another Lord. And not just one alongside all others, the world's true Lord, the one above all the others that calls the others into, or questions their legitimacy. So that's what it means to work with Paul, to work as a fellow soldier and a co-worker and he's also your your messenger whom he sent to take care of my needs okay so it's not all up there super spiritual kind of stuff and talking theology and you know doing spiritual prayer battle thing or whatever Epaphras is sent basically first and foremost take care of Paul Paul is suffering for the gospel Paul is in chains as he says in Ephesus awaiting trial and he needs help he needs practical assistance and so the Philippians sent Epaphroditus with different kinds of material goods and so forth to take care of him because no one else was going to and for the sake of that I'm not um, going to hold this as, as a great example do not aspire to get sick for the gospel do not aspire to burn yourself out uh, for the gospel But he really did throw his whole self into this situation, Epaphroditus. He threw him completely into Paul's situation and he became ill and almost died. But God, he says, had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. And therefore I'm eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and have less anxiety. Um, this was on the side about the way that we sometimes envisage Paul. Um, Paul talks about in a whole lot of different ways about the amazing things that God does for him. You might remember the end of Romans where he talks about, I've gone and pre you know, I've preached around this whole area and there were signs and there were wonders and all sorts of things. But it wasn't like day, day by day, there were just miracles popping around everywhere. 
and Paul didn't know that Epaphroditus was going to pull through here. He doesn't say, I laid hands on him. He doesn't say, God gave me a gift of healing and I prayed for him and he was healed and it was all good and I knew it would be okay. Clearly here, he did not know that it was going to be okay and he was thankful that God did in fact bring Epaphroditus through. A lot of what Paul is doing is reading the scriptures, praying, trying to hear from the Lord, but he doesn't know day by day what's, what's going to happen for sure. And you know from the book of Acts, he said he'll make plans, he'll go, okay, I think we'll stay here for such and such years and then we're going to move on and we're going to catch a ship from here to there, whatever. It, God hasn't told him to do it, he doesn't know what's going to happen. And then you'll have something in the middle of the night, bang, he gets a vision. You know, we're over here in, um, was it Macedonia or was it Ephesus at that point? Come over here and, and help us out, he gets this vision. Oh, okay, right, we'll, we'll do that. Paul didn't sort of experience this kind of ongoing sense of God's presence all the time and I'm always happy and I always know what's going on, things like that. His guidance is the story of Jesus, the indwelling spirit, the same as any other Christian. And then sometimes those kind of miraculous other things. But Paul lives the same kind, in one sense, the same kind of life as the rest of us. So sometimes you feel close to God and sometimes maybe you don't. And here's Paul sent on God's mission at the cutting edge of all of this, but even he does not always know what God has intended for him. And sometimes, like in the beginning of Philippians, you remember there that he says, he's kind of like, I don't know which way this is going to go, depart and be with Christ, and I, I'm, I'm not sure which, what's going to come of my trial, etc. So we should sort of gain some comfort, I think, from the fact that there's not this super spiritual Paul who has no idea what we go through. Um, it's probably the other way around. There's a super spiritual Paul who doesn't always know what's going on, but basically has thrown himself into the gospel and into the sufferings of Christ, something which we might be reluctant to do, we might want to pull back from. So he goes on there, I uh, I'm going to skip into chapter 3 just very briefly for next week, but just while we're on this theme. So he says, Welcome a paradise in the Lord with great joy. Honour him, honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, and he risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. And then finally, further, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Everything always circles back at the end, does it not, to what has the Lord done for us, what is the Lord doing in the world, what will the Lord do in the future on the last day. And then we take a bit of a change of tack here as well. But within it, after some really harsh words, and we'll look at it in more detail next week, but we also see Paul's heart and how he understands his life, participating in the life of Christ his death and resurrection. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Again, quick aside, have you read the New Testament? Yeah, I know what it's about. Got it sorted. It's good to keep reading and rereading and rehearsing and rethinking and learning and whatever anew and over and over and over again 
not just to make yourself smarter or something, but rather, as Paul says here, I'm writing the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, there's a specific situation here that he's referring to, but I think that's a good word of advice, is it not? Is that we are being formed day by day in society to think and act and value things in particular ways, undervalue certain things, overvalue other things, and instead we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to be changed and transformed. In this situation, verse 2, watch out for those dogs. Just remember, Paul's, Paul's not polite or British. Okay? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Okay, this sounds like his old enemies again, those who are trying to bring these new Christian converts, Gentile converts under the Torah, the Jewish law, to get circumcised, observe the food laws, keep the Sabbath, and a whole bunch of other things. As we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, even though I have more reasons for such confidence, confidence, if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them, we'll just say garbage for this week. Those of you who know the, the word. Um, so I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained this or arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Well, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize. To be honest, when you read some of that, that doesn't always fit nicely with kind of a nice... Um, uh, calm sort of reformational you know just trust it's all going to work out in the end if you just believe it's all good for Paul participation in the Christian life is to strain forward it's to press forward it's like to run a race it is just wanting to somehow as he says to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow strange word attaining to the resurrection of the dead. This, I guess, it's not just enthusiasm, it's not fanaticism, but Paul is dead set that the meaning of Christian life is in fact to participate in the life of Christ. It is in fact, sorry, I just waved to Matt at the back. Um, it is in fact to want to 
live in all respects as Christ did, even at this extent of his suffering. It's not, just, it's not sort of like just suffering for the sake of suffering, but it's like to live the life of Christ in such a way that, in a sense, it is inevitable that one would actually encounter the opposition and experience the suffering that Jesus does. Paul is experiencing it now. But you see that he actually enfolds that within his understanding of what Christian life is about. This is not a surprise. I'm not startled. Hey, God's on my side. Why are things going bad here? Instead, for him, it's a case of what I'm doing now, confronting the powers that be, declaring the gospel of Christ, means I will, in fact, suffer. But I embrace it. I want to be like Christ. I want to be just like he is. And I know that if I do that, if I pour my life into Christ, that I also will share in the resurrection. Now, this isn't a merit thing. It's like, you know, chalk up your suffering points and, you know, once you hit... 50, you get a gold card and you get resurrected as well. It's not like you're earning your way somehow to, uh, to resurrection. But for Paul, it's like I'm just immersing myself into Christ. And that means a cruciform life, a life that looks like the example of Jesus we just saw, obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. With the same confidence that you see the Philippians 2 as well. Therefore God highly exalted him. In the same way that God has uh, um, raised up his faithful son, those who are in him, those who throw their lives into him, those who participate in the life of Christ, also with him will be raised up. The point for Paul is not so much to count up the merit question, because it's nothing to do with merit. It's simply to say, what does Christian life look like? And in closing, what it looks like is people who pour themselves out for others, who are concerned for the welfare of others. It is to declare the good news, the gospel of the risen Jesus, the crucified Messiah risen from the dead. To understand that that speaks against the powers of this world. And to throw oneself into that in the same way as Jesus did, to actually live in Christ, to participate in life in Christ. Because anything that we consider gain and wonderful, whatever in our life, as Paul says in this different context, I consider it nothing, it's loss. It's not that it has no value, but compared with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, It is nothing. So we're back, I suppose, to again this, the double love commandment. You who have given your life to Christ, continue to give your life for Christ. Thankful for the life and the blessings that you might have, nonetheless, in the light of the surpassing wonder what it is to know Christ Jesus value things correctly I think with all of this this always comes back to us thinking about not condemning ourselves not excusing ourselves as well but always in our prayer and in our dedication to God saying again how is it that I can serve you Lord 
And how can I serve you in a way where I'm not just sort of looking for the benefits, but I'm actually willing to, for the sake of others, pour myself out. To be obedient to God, no matter the cost, even, as our Lord showed us, even death on a cross. Paul hasn't already obtained this great thing that he hopes for, but he continues to press on. We'll look at that next week and we'll see how this also works out in, um, in Christian community as we get to chapter 4 as well. But uh, let's stop now. Let's pray. Let's dedicate ourselves afresh to the Lord to go and to serve him this week in our workplaces, in our homes in our community, as we meet people, as we talk with people. Let's have this in our mind, to live the same, have the same mind as if it was in Christ Jesus and as exemplified by Paul, by Timothy, Epaphroditus, and so many others throughout the New Testament. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have provided such a great salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ that uh, as he gave himself for us that you highly exalted him and you've given him a name above every name. We thank you that now as we work out our own salvation together that you will help us to be the kind of people that we read about here in Paul's letter. We think of Timothy and we think, yes, help us to be one of those people that, not in competition with each other, but stand out, that shine like stars, as Paul put it earlier, in this generation. We pray that we would have the welfare of others deep in our heart. We pray that we would pour ourselves out for others too even if it means sometimes difficulty, strife, suffering, etc. We pray that above all things that we would cherish the knowledge of Christ, not as an idea, but as participation in the life of Christ, participation in his death and resurrection. Thank you for the strength of your spirit that you've given to us to live this out day by day. Thank you for your community who encourages us to live this life and thank you for the scriptures which teach us and instruct us and encourage us and rebuke us at times in order to live this life. As we go now, we ask that you would uh, empower us in mission and care for those around us, the compassion of those around us as Bruce prayed earlier. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.